This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay. okay. Some people believe if we repeat stories often enough, they become real. They make us who we are. That can be scary. Eat it, Harold. Do you want to see Haunted House? Some kids went missing, so they boarded it up. Okay, we saw it. Should we go now? Who ordered the chicken? back from spring break. It's time to put down the soup ladle and pick up your sterling fountain pens, fill the reservoirs with your own blood, and get ready to think about comparative literature, because we are back at Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You. I'm Bradford Lorick. And I'm Eric Winnick. Scare You is a podcast about horror films told from several points of view. We call this podcast Scare You because one of us is going back to school today, as it were, to learn something new. And this pale sack of grinning flesh will be experiencing a horror film he hasn't seen yet. As assigned by a true teller of tall tales, Sarah Bellows. I'm sorry, I, I meant you, sir. I meant you. Joining us today to talk about the 2019 film Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is a gentleman coming all the way from Ditmas Park, Brooklyn, Clay McLeod Chapman. (laughs) Clay, hello. Clay is the author of the novels Ghost Eaters, (laughs) Whisper Down the Lane, The Remaking, and Miss Corpus, Story Collections Nothing Untoward, Commencement and Rest Area, as well as the Tribe series, Homeroom Headhunters, Camp Cannibal, and Academic Assassins. His new novel, What Kind of Mother, arrives on September 12th of this year, the year of our Lord, 2023. His numerous other projects include Quiet Part Loud, a 12-part horror podcast series from Jordan Peele and Monkey Paw Productions, Uh, The short film Henley, based on a chapter from Clay's novel Miss Corpus, was an official selection at the 2012 Sundance Film Festival, and the feature-length version, The Boy, was produced by Elijah Wood's Spectre Vision 
and it premiered at South by Southwest in 2015. There are so many other things to say about Clay's career, including his adventures in Marvel Comics and the American theater. And we will, of course, list his full bio on the Scare You website. Um, but for now, I just want to welcome my old friend to the show and ask, how you doing, sir? And what are you up to? <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, gang. This is, this is a blast. Um, you know, it's been, sure. a, it's been a hectic year. I, you know, I think uh, mm-hmm. writing books, trying to tell some spooky stories. Um, the new book comes out in September, which I'm really, really, really excited about, nervous about, anxious about. Um, but yeah, telling, telling stories wherever there's a rock that I can kind of crawl under. Love it. <laughs> um, and do I understand correct, uh, Clay, that you and Mr. Lorik have something of a, um, a history together? A sordid one. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yes, please um, do tell. We did. <laughs> we would do theater, you know, off, 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 mm-hmm. off, 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 way off Broadway um, uh, and all the black boxes and basements and attics of, you know, below 14th Street. <laughs> and uh, it was it was a wonderful time. I miss it. I miss it so much thinking yeah, back to it now. Me you get, too. You know, just thinking of the, the Red Bird days, the Studio 42 days. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. God, Do you concur, that. Mr. Lorick? Is is Mr. Chapman telling that story correctly? Oh, God, yeah. But, you know, I mean, even before I knew Clay and before I worked with Clay, I was a fan of his work. Yes. Um, Jess Applebaum was mm. forever proselytizing about the pumpkin pie show. and, and Right, just right. Just this fucking wonder on stage clay mcleod chapman and i remember seeing pumpkin pie show with clay and hannah cheek at the red room yes above kgb bar and just being completely in awe and in love with the stuff that they were doing and then you know later when we did work like red bird which was a play that clay wrote that isaac butler directed that people like <laughs> Hannah Boss and Paul Therene starred in. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it was just, it, it was the most wonderful sort of creative little crucible that we were all working in together. Um, all right, so listen, Clay, the, the first thing we like to ask our guests is, and I don't know, frankly, if we have time for your answer to this question, but what is your history with the horror genre? And what's your favorite <laughs> horror film? Oh man. Um, well, okay. Let me see if I can. I, I'll, I'll do the the truncated version. But I mean, like horror, horror has been a part of my <laughs> the fabric of my existence since since childhood. And and I mean, I think it. You know, I owe it all to that that one babysitter who probably shouldn't have you know decided to put in Halloween. Uh, I, I I have distinct memories of watching. Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, probably at age six or seven and just being kind of profoundly affected by that. Um, but, you know, to be totally honest, like the movies that that kind of sank into my psyche from the get go were these really like oddball horror comedies that that could find their way onto channels like TBS on a Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um 
because they were, you know, the rating system was so wonky back then. Like, this was kind of pre PG 13. So I remember watching stuff like <laughs> student bodies or <laughs> Saturday, the 14th, um, you know, films that are not great films and to even kind of put them under the, the, the moniker of horrors, a stretch. Uh, but they were kind of lighthearted, frothy fare. But the one film that really stuck uh, was this one called Tourist Trap, mm-hmm. um, which is phenomenal. I wholeheartedly recommend it. It's, a, it's actually a confounding film um, because it's, it's, it's a little <laughs> bit Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's a little bit Carrie. It's a little bit Psycho. It's a little bit, it's, it, it's, it's like, it, it defies kind of definition or, or, or easy or categorization. Of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it, it's, but it's a beautiful movie starring Chuck Connors um, mm-hmm. from the gunslinger days. Yeah. And, but it's, it the just the way that they've they crafted this movie and just how kind of utterly gonzo it goes um i loved it i you know it traumatized me as a kid because mannequins are kind of a, a huge kind of component to it um but it's it's a phenomenal movie and because it was rated pg at a time <laughs> before pg13 entered into the fold these basic cable channels just put it on heavy rotation at like daylight hours, like absurdly early hours, you know, to the point where I could just kind of come home from school, <laughs> come home from first grade or second grade or whatever grade I was in and Ooh. watch this movie that is, I mean, it's traumatizing. It's, it's a, it's a unnerving movie. Um, and yeah, like it, that, that kind of planted the seed and, you know, you asked what, what my favorite movie it is, and I'm, I'm already listing off a gazillion. But, you know, if I if I didn't say, you know, the original Black Christmas, if I didn't say uh, David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers, um, you know, those those films like just I, I feel like the, the films that kind of traumatize me on a <laughs> kind of an intellectual, emotional level, um, like th- those are the ones that that really, really stick. Guys, let's let's discuss what this film is about. Um, Eric, will you give us a brief, spoiler-free synopsis? Yes, I will. Let me just cue up the uh, wonderful soundtrack here to this film. It's Halloween, 1968, in Mill Valley, Pennsylvania, a town best known for its mill and its valley. Friends Stella, Augie, and Chuck decide to take revenge on some local bullies led by Tommy, who's dating Chuck's sister, Ruth. After removing his own feces from the toilet to hand to Tommy and throwing the requisite eggs at Tommy's car, the bullies track the friends to a drive-in movie theater showing Night of the Living Dead. That's when Stella, Augie, and Chuck hop in the car of... 
Ramon, a mysterious drifter who's come to town to escape the draft. Afterwards, the four make their way to a dilapidated home on the edge of town that once belonged to the wealthy Bellows family, who mysteriously disappeared shortly after the town's titular mill shut down. The Bellows' daughter, Sarah, was, we learn, a prolific teller of stories that was also hidden away in a cellar by a family hell-bent on keeping a terrible secret at bay. Well, Eric, I, for one, am glad to see that we're back on track after your numerous, shall we say, missteps in the previous three episodes. Well, I learned from my mistakes, sir. You can't learn. Anyway, let's let's tell the people a bit about this movie. Yes. Well, perhaps appropriately coming off our review of The Thing, uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark was directed by the Norwegian Andre Overdahl, who, aside from uh, shooting at dogs from helicopters, is perhaps best known for the films Mortal, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, and Troll Hunter, shockingly, none of which I have seen. Uh, gentlemen, are you familiar with these chestnuts? Absolutely. Not mortal, but I will go to bat for the autopsy of Jane Doe. Like I, I, I actually think that that is a, a film that deserves more, more eyeballs on it. Troll Hunter I like, but, but there's something about the autopsy of Jane Doe. Brian Cox so takes a, a star turn in it. Um, you know, this, this kind of blend of kind of mystery procedural laced with supernatural horror. Um, which is, it's great. I, I, yeah, that movie. It's, it's really quiet, really unsettling. I think amazing performances from the cast. It's, it's effectively a two-hander from most of the film. Um, and I think I sort of feel similarly to Clay about Troll Hunter. I mean, the special effects are great. Like it's a, it's like a, I mean, a found footage movie about trolls. Like who, right. who doesn't want to watch that? <laughs> I, I feel like that one, you watch it once and you say to yourself, yeah, good, good for them. Like the special right. effects are just stellar. Yeah. Um, Visually but... great. Yeah. Um, I, I should also say that Overdahl has a, a new film coming out later this year, uh, right around the time of Clay's book, the Dracula adaptation Last Voyage of the Demeter, which I believe is based on a chapter from Bram Stoker's novel. Um, now, this film, Scary Stories, uh, its its lineage is a bit tangled. It was it was written by Dan and Kevin, uh, I believe Hageman is the is the last name, and it's based on a screen story by Patrick Melton, Marcus Dunstan. Uh, not to be confused with Dunstan checks Dunstan in. Dunstan checks in. Exactly. <laughs> Hello, Dana Ivy. I am familiar with your work. I've seen Dunstan checks in. And a little known fella named Guillermo del Toro. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, now this never film heard is of him. never heard of him. This film is based on Alvin Schwartz's beloved short story collections from uh, that he wrote between 1981 and 1991. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, More Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, and Scary Stories 3, More Tales to Chill Your Bones, all of which feature supremely creepy illustrations by Stephen Gamble. Uh, now, gentlemen, uh, needless to say, I'm not familiar with any of this. Surprise, surprise. So please tell me that you have some history 
with these books. This is my history. Like, honestly, like mm. this is my childhood. This is my upbringing. You would go to the Scholastic Book Fair. Book Fair. It was the book fairs. The Scholastic mm. Book Fairs were phenomenal because you would, you know, you would, whatever, it was usually at the library or the cafeteria. Or, you know, there was something in your school. A room was kind of taken over by this, this kind of assembly, this kind of like, you know, pop-up. Uh, bookstore and they would all they would have these these phenomenal books that you know like southern fried rat or other kind of urban legends <laughs> yes um, oh my god i remember the cover Jesus, <laughs> yes yes <laughs> but the 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 true like the kind of the bestseller the phenom was scary stories to tell in the dark and if you if you were able to buy a copy um Alvin Schwartz is amazing as this kind of folklorist who kind of gathered all of these these kind of urban legends and stories, um, and kind of putting them in one place. And but it, it truly is Stephen Gamble's illustrations that I, I mean to this day it is no exaggeration to say these these images are just kind of seared into my my mind and to a whole generation to the extent that you know librarians, uh, principals, teachers like it. This was the kind of precursor book ban, like the, the kind of like, yes. here's a book that's really, you know, causing some waves and parents don't like it. And, and we need it out of the, we need it out of our libraries. And, and I think it was the first time that I was kind of aware of a book having that, that kind of that danger, that kind of potency to be transgressive, you know, for a third grader kind of being like, wait, you want to take this book away from me now? I want to mm -hmm. read it. Like this is, mm -hmm. I need this book. There are some, there's some poems, there's some songs. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you, we could just kind of cherry pick favorites, but I honestly, there's something to be said about the hearse song. Of course. That <laughs> I, I, you know, I could, you know, I swear to God, I did not practice this beforehand and I'm not reading it off, but I could don't ever laugh as the hearse, as the hearse goes by, by for you, for may, you be may be the next, the next to, to die. die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they wrap you up in a big white sheet from mm -hmm. your head down, head to, your down feet. to your feet. They put you, I might be skipping now, but they put you in a big black box and they cover you they cover up, you up with dirt, with dirt and, rocks. and rocks. Yes. All goes well for about a week, but then your coffin begins, begins to leak. To leak. <laughs> and the worms crawl in and the, the worms, worms crawl, crawl out in your stomach. Worms play pinochle, pinochle on, your, on snout. your snout. Yes. Oh God, you guys, this is, uh, I, I don't like this. I mean, I mean this it, is, eventually I mean, I like we've it. got, it, listen, eventually we've got pus pouring out like whipping Ooh. cream that you spread <laughs> on a slice of bread. Oh God. And that's what you eat, you eat when, when you, you are, are dead. dead. You know, for a kid growing up in, you know, the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia, like this, this was like a floodgate opened and I, I feel as if, you know, I, I, it never closed. Thank God. Yeah. Until they tried to take yeah. the book away. <laughs> I was, I was visiting family in Washington, DC and my slightly younger cousin who was a total scaredy cat had the first two books in the series and I read them both immediately and I loved them in an instant. And I think much like Clay and Eric, I think probably the same is true of you, uh, based on your social posts this week, 
but the illustrations by Stephen Gamble were yes. so surreal and uncanny and evocative. It's like you didn't need to read the story when you saw the Gamble illustration because it's so sort of perfectly and abstractly condensed the story into a single monochrome image. And, and they are simply unforgettable. Clay, you probably remember this, but, uh, you know, I think in the 2010s, there was a new edition that came out with new artwork, and it caused a bit of an uproar. Yes, I heard about this. And um, I'm pretty sure it's Harper Collins who, published, who publishes the books, and um, they changed back to the, the Gamel illustrations. It was such a misstep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, every so often the publishing industry seems to make a decision maybe uh, unwisely, you know, for <laughs> for whatever reason, you know, whether it's editing out uh, Roald Dahl. I think whatever, whoever made that decision and why, I have no idea. But at that point, you could not separate the Gamma illustrations from the short stories. And it does feel like that, I don't know, that Unshin and the Lu kind of razor over your eyeball. Like yes. That. You see, you see these images and all of a sudden it's just like, there's no getting rid of them. I mean, if you're a kid and you're seeing spiders erupt from some girl's cheek or the skeleton wearing the wedding dress or, mm. I mean, there's just so many. It's beautiful stuff. Uh, this cast, um, great cast, uh, little known at the time, young thespians, uh, including Zoe Margaret Coletti as Stella, Michael Garza as Ramon, Gabriel Rush as Augie, and Austin, I'm going to destroy this, but it, it looks like Zazur, uh, Zazur as Chuck and they are ably complimented by Dean Norris, a.k.a. DEA agent Hank Schrader from Breaking Bad, and our old pal Javier Botet from Witching and Bitching, who plays a lumbering corpse. All right. Well, now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society, the portion of our show where we talk about numbers, whether they add up, and uh, then we tell you what the critics thought, and then we make fun of the critics. So Scary Stories was released on August 11th, 2019. It was sporting a budget of $25 million, and it wound up grossing uh, $69 million in the U.S. and Canada, and uh, $104.5 million worldwide, making this story something of a success. Scary Stories holds a critical 77% and an audience 72% on Rotten Tome Big Toes. See what I did there? Uh, sadly, our guy Raj had passed on to the great balcony in the sky when this came out. But Clark Collis in Entertainment Weekly, who's going to be showing up around these parts in the near future, uh, gave the film a B plus, calling it a disgustingly good gateway horror movie. Every so often, a movie comes around which both reminds those fans of the tales which originally inspired their love for genre cinema, while also helping to ensure the future of horror by seeding that devotion in today's teens and preteens. 
New York Times' Ben Kenigsberg was similarly enthusiastic, stating, If Alvin Schwartz's popular Scary Stories children's books condensed folklore into an accessible anthology form, then this agreeable bit of fan service performs a similar gateway function for movies. Whether it's the scene-setting blast of Donovan from Zodiac, the low-height steadicam work from The Shining, the red suffused hallways of David Lynch, or Night of the Living Dead playing at a drive-in, this movie takes from the best. Now, sadly, Owen Gleiberman of Variety didn't get it. He opined, <laughs> The movie faithfully recreates the peak moments of half a dozen of Schwartz's most popular stories, weaving them together, or maybe we should just say scotch taping them together into a patchy narrative. Keith Ulick of that other industry rag, The Hollywood Reporter, was similarly disenchanted, calling the film's callback to 1968 social issues, quote, ineffective window dressing, copious demerits for setting a scene at a drive-in, showing Night of the Living Dead, and reformatting that film's 1.37 aspect ratio to a modern-era-friendly 1.78. Sacrilege! We'll call the needle-dropping of Season of the Witch by Donovan and its end credits cover by Lana Del Rey a draw. Scary Stories was nominated for exactly... No Oscars or Golden Globes, but it did take home the only award that matters, the Fangoria Chainsaw Award for Best Creature Effects. And now it's our opportunity to Ask the Professor, the weekly segment in which we get to ask questions of he who assigned the film, which in this case, and every case, is me. Uh, but before we get started, I just want to confirm, Clay, unlike Eric, you, in fact, had seen this film before? Why, yes, I had. Okay, great. So uh, now inform us and our listening audience, Professor, why you chose this film for the Scare You curriculum. Well, I think like Clark hinted at in his Entertainment Weekly review, this movie has everything for kids who grew up in the 80s and savored Schwartz's books. I mean, it has ballpoint pens featuring ladies who take off their clothes straight from the pages of a Lillian Vernon catalog. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that while I can quietly concede a few of Gleiberman's points from his Variety review, I think this is a particularly interesting film to look at when considering the concept of adaptation. In 1981, when the first of these collections of adapted folklore, and I think it's particularly fascinating that the subject matter of the film is actually sort of twice refracted through adaptation. In 81, when that was published, you know, Eric, you said uh, it, it was followed by a second installment in 84 and a third in 91. And I think, I think this film adaptation is very clearly from its opening images. I think it's a labor of love made by those people who love being scared for those of us who also love being scared. And it's so richly detailed. And I think that those details are also incredibly meaningful to those of us who, who grew up loving this kind of entertainment. And I sort of love how it kind of examines the microcosm. We get to see the inner workings of small town America in the late 1960s, albeit fictional small town Pennsylvania. 
And while this was shot in Canada, it certainly reminds me of the small town in Pennsylvania where I grew up. And I think in this small town, we, we also kind of get to see what the impact of gossip and rumor mongering is on, on those people who are being gossiped about, both in the distant past with Sarah Bellows and also how sort of similar scuttlebutt impacts the character of Stella. And I think even you know in this, when they're talking about local legends, the protagonists are, are sharing variations on the rumors about Sarah Bellows and that empty mansion among themselves. And, and at the end, when Stella repeats that line, stories hurt, stories heal, I think we kind of get the feeling that she's not, she's not speaking exclusively about the written word. I think there's, there's so much well-executed context and backstory in this film that's delivered to us almost totally organically in such a non-forced way that it's almost hard to talk about all the levels on which it operates. I think what gets a little bit lost in this film is kind of a thorough understanding either among the filmmakers or among us as audiences as to what the exact supernatural mechanism is, or at least what the rules that govern it are. And, you know, Sarah Bellow's rage is the force, but where can it go and what can it do? And is it sort of constrained within the borders of Mill Valley? Can it go anywhere that it wants? Um, but I think other than those quibbles, I think that Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark presents nostalgic scenarios that are mostly negative, but it evokes a nostalgia in, in me that is positive. And Eric, you know how I feel about the dangers of feelings like nostalgia. But in this case, I think if you were a certain kind of kid who grew up at a certain time, scary stories to tell in the dark is like sitting down in the company of old friends. And some of those old friends are very, very frightening. Oh, would you look at that? It's the fire drill. Everyone, everyone, please leave the scary old house, single file, do not head down any dark staircases, and should you choose to listen further and you have not seen the film, come on, what are you thinking? Which means it's time for Study Hall, uh, the portion of our show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, body parts, or aspects that made this such an indelible experience. And we'll be breaking this section up into two segments. First, honor roll, i.e. what worked, followed by detention, i.e. what didn't work. But before we get into it, I have to ask you both to just establish where we are on the playing field. Give me a basic yes or no response. Did you like this film? Clay? Yeah. Eric? Yeah. Oh my god, the two. <laughs> All right, boys, let's get into it. Let's do honor roll first. We'll do it round robin style. We'll each name the scene or scenes or aspects or attributes that work best for us. And then we will hand out some dreaded detention slips. So Clay, as our guest, we'd love to ask you to go first. What is your first nomination for the honor roll? Oh, I, it is an honor to go first. I, I have one scene that I would like to bring up uh, to honor for honor roll, and that is the the red room scene. 
um, the section yes. where poor Chuck, uh, he's had a nightmare that seems to be following him, and he's afraid that Sarah Bellows will will kind of latch onto it and exploit it for her own nefarious reasons. Um, but it's a dream about being in a room that is all red, uh, and I, I can't remember how he he kind of posits it, but there's a a woman in the room um, who says scary things, and uh, it just so happens that his his fears are are valid um, because Sarah Bellows does in fact take this nightmare, and while they're visiting a the, the local asylum um, to do a little <laughs> yes. his, little digging. Um, <laughs> As you do. Come on um, down to the local asylum, kids. As one does. <laughs> we need to do some research. It's 60s, so they, the, you know, this is the, the pre-Google, you know, go to the basement and, and find some files. And Chuck gets separated from the rest of the group um, or kind of holds back. And in doing that, um, the asylum kind of basically turns into this kind of labyrinth uh, where the, the halls go from kind of kind of sterile white to bleeding red and oh it's just this gorgeous scene it's it's actually done i i i think this is where the film is just kind of like firing on all cylinders because the the tension is just so obscenely slow mm-hmm. um and it just ratchets up and up and up where you know chuck kind of sees at the the far 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 end of this hall a a, a pale figure that is just slowly slumbering, lumbering its way towards us. Um, yes. And he he says, well, I'm not going to go in that direction. And he goes in the other. Um, only, lo and behold, turns a corner and he's right back where he started. And this, this figure just continues to close in and close in. And the more you, you know, Chuck and we, the audience, see this figure, we realize that it is a immense enormous pale block of you know nearly translucent cheese woman and it just it is um you know and and i think that this is also to give you know credit to the filmmakers and i i feel like this is probably guillermo del toro you know exerting his own fandom um but it, it is Stephen Gamble's illustration for uh, a story I do believe showed up in book three of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Um, not called The Red Room, though. I think it was called The Painting. And um, completely different story, kind of out of context with the, the movie. Um, but it is that, that Gamble illustration you know, writ large, like you see it kind of towering over <laughs> this poor kid and he can't escape it. And she comes in for a hug and it gets really squishy and he disappears. Totally yeah. absorbed. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's actually the, the, the red room is actually, there's two red rooms. There's the one that they find initially, which is an, it's like an acronym. I don't remember exactly yeah. what it stands for, but it's R E D. And they're like, oh, this is not so scary. And then, and then I think the the alarm goes off while Chuck is running around. Yes. And so the redness. Well, Chuck is sort declines of the, to go into the R E D room. That's right. That's right. 
And so the the siren, not the siren, I'm sorry, what, what is it? Um, there's sort of a flashing red light, which bathes the hall in this in this scary redness. And I think that's, yeah. that's what makes it so red. And it is, it is great. I agree with you, Clay. It's a great scene. And, you know, I mean, to, to pick up on what you were talking about, Clay, I mean, I think, it, you know, for, for my first honor roll, nomination yes i think it's all about the fidelity to the series original illustrations monochromatic executed with a super loose hand and a total sense of abstraction you don't even have to know what is happening in the stories that they accompany to feel them running cold up and down your spine and when i when i first learned that a big screen adaptation was coming and a, a decent budget, my first thoughts ran to how the black and white art in two dimensions and bearing almost no relationship to what we understand as human anatomy could be translated into three dimensions. And I think this film does not disappoint with any of them. Um, I think the creature designs and the creature performances are so strong and so deeply uncanny and strange and asymmetrical that I can't help but be impressed by them on their own merits and in comparison to those drawings that I loved, love so much. And, you know, continue to recall, as you said, Clay, in those kind of excruciating details ever since the first time I saw them. Um, so Eric, what about you? What's your first honor roll nomination? Well, boys, I think we have a trifecta on our hands because I wrote down creature design is top notch. And I think they did a yes. fine job of translating some of Gamble's grisly visions to the screen. This is literally what I wrote down. And I think that's where you really feel Del Toro's influence. Um, Del Toro's given us so many memorable creatures from the Pale Man in Pan's Labyrinth to the Merman in Shape of Water. Um, it's almost a no-brainer that the creature effects would totally slap in this thing. And um, so for me, this is easily the best thing about this film. Who's your favorite creature? Clay's block of cheese. <laughs> I think the most extraordinary thing about the execution of that character is the costume. Where it starts, where right. it ends, is right. the dress made of fabric that's fused with her skin? Is right. it all just strange flesh? It's so gorgeous and, and you know, beguiling. Well, um, you know, it's, 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 it's all Gouda to me. Um, listen, let's move on to our second honor roll nomination. Let's go back to Clay. Second honor roll? All right. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Clay, what do you got for us uh, honor roll number two? I feel less inclined to give more honor roll. I, the Red Room for me is the kind of, that is the true distinction. And if I had to pick a, a second, I, I think that, you know, it, it, it goes back to, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to even say this correctly, but the, the me, the me tied Dodie Walker. Yeah. <laughs> you have to say it fast. The, the me tied Dodie Walker. Um, and I, is it the jangly man? Like, I know he's credited. Yes. I, I feel like why I want to honor this one um, is because there's a there's a certain kind of sense of humor to it that I do think a lot of the the original stories, the Alvin Short stories, 
can have. Yes. Um, it's very dark, very opaque, but every so often just the kind of the cheekiness to the horror comes out and having an opportunity to see these limbs essentially Ooh. kind of like heave themselves out of the, <laughs> the shadows and kind of plop down on the floor. And what is it? What is the sheriff's name? Chief Turner. Um, yeah. Sheriff yep. Turner, like him just to be like, what does he say again? It's like, he basically says, what the fuck? Or just, Oh <laughs> fuck. Or Oh shit. <laughs> like He just has the, like that, you know, a, a decapitated head just like plops in front of him. Yeah. And, he just has this this very earnest response that that it's not a scream it's not a it's not a moment of just pure panic it's like oh shit yes and, that's not good <laughs> like it just i i love the kind of honesty of that moment they had a lot of fun with it um they had a lot of fun with the jangly man and it's probably also worth pointing out that much like the sort of sarah bellows kind of super narrative the jangly man and that sort of interaction was created by the filmmakers. It does not come directly from Schwartz's collection. Because right. in, in the original story, it's just a head that falls down and has like a <laughs> That's right. has, an, a, has a conversation with a dog who's sitting in front of the fireplace. I think the dog dies, and that's the end of the story. Uh, Mr. Lorick, uh, would you give us your second honor roll, please? I sure would. Um, great, great. I, I think... I'd like to, I think I'd like to give a nomination to the, to the writing of and the relationships among the young protagonists. I think that they're each sort of uniquely drawn and individuated and, and pretty quirkily written, especially Chuck. Um, and I, I love the detail in the characters that, you know, Augie has a thing for Commedia dell'arte. Yes. Or or seems to, at least, since he's dressed as Piero for Halloween, he's got a Commedia poster on the back of his bedroom door. Yeah. Um, I love that I love that Chuck has a really foul mouth for a 15-year-old in 1968, you know, um, in that first sort of battle scene with Tommy when he says, now for the poo d'etat, eat... <laughs> Eat turd shit bird. And then later he's like antagonizing Ruthie and she slams the bathroom door on him and he just screams, God damn it, my banana. <laughs> you know, it's sort of this like out of left field moment. And I just, you know, I found myself really being genuinely amused by a lot of the things that, that the character of Chuck was doing. That said, I also love the research scene at the local newspaper because not only mm -hmm. does it feature teamwork among these young characters, Ooh, but it also go. features microfilm, my favorite thing about any horror movie ever. Yeah. Um, so my, for my second honor roll, I, I, I'm not saying, this is not saying this is the same as a good film, but I, I think this is about as good an adaptation as you could do of a series of super short stories that are meant to be acted out by children. I mean, the book or books are really not adaptable in the traditional sense. I mean, you've almost got to invent something from whole cloth, build a scaffolding around it, which this does. Not exactly successfully, but I do give them an A for effort, uh, which is not to be confused with my final grade for this film, by the way, coming soon. Um, it it also leaves very much 
uh, open the possibility of a sequel, given that we don't locate Augie and Chuck after they are whatever happens to them. And, and that actually seems to be in the works, according to Overdahl's IMDb page, um, which is kind of neat uh, when you consider Schwartz wrote three books. So there are certainly plenty of stories to draw from. You know, I, I do think you're right I, to to an extent. I, I found myself thinking uh, as I was rewatching it last night that a deft scribe could could take any of these stories and turn them into a full length film. And I think when we get into detention, I, I'm going to have some things to say in this direction when we when we move over there. Um, Clay, are we to understand that you will not be designating a third honor roll nomination? I'll do one in a in a kind of broader general sure. sense. One of the the kind of the themes that I take away from this that I really appreciate is the idea of um, the the haunting by way of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, that storytelling in of itself is a major facet to the horror here. That like you know, in a way the kind of transmission of this ghost is through the physical act of telling a story, um, whether that's in writing it or dreaming it or t- sharing it with someone else. And I, you know, this, this is kind of playing into some of my own kind of pet obsessions, but I, you know, I really appreciate the filmmakers kind of using this age old art, you know, the oral traditions, ghost stories, you know, sitting around the campfire, telling, telling a tale and kind of weaponizing it, like actually using that as the kind of transmission of this, this spectral phantasmic figure of, of Sarah Bellows. And that's how she gets you. I do think to a certain extent, this movie is basically playing out of the the kind of the ring playbook ringu you know just a, a an analog pre vhs video cassette and that you, same you kind of inexorability of that curse you don't pass along a a haunted video cassette or a cursed video cassette you pass along a cursed story shall i give my third honor roll nomination sure go ahead i i think it's all about the fan service and the sort of volume of Easter eggs that are kind of sprinkled throughout and and references, smart references often to other media. Um, you know, for example, Ruthie, before she, you know, becomes the egg sack to a, a horde of tiny spiders, she's starring in Bye Bye Birdie, which is a musical about a rock star being drafted into the military. You know, um, Stella's bedroom features uh, movie posters from what? Night of the Living Dead, Frankenstein's Daughter, The Beast from Haunted Cave, Mesa of Lost Women. You know, there is a poster for the terror with Jack Nicholson and Boris Karloff on the wall of this 14 year old girl's bedroom. Um, and and I think there are uh, countless tiny scenic design elements that that evoke illustrations that aren't even directly related to the stories um and i i just think again you know the the filmmakers know their audience 
and they are delivering to their audience what is going to make them um, a, a very happy audience. Um, Eric, do you have a third? Uh, thank you. Yes, I was very, very pleased for you, Bradford, that we got a microfilm scene in this film, albeit at a newspaper and not at a library. Oh, you're just the best. I'm thinking of you. Detention, after school, both of you. You'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? Excuse me? You can take that language straight to detention. Anyone else? Motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just perfect. Okay, so now as playwright Ernie Joslovitz used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips. Uh, Again, Clay, as our guest, why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of this film that you think deserves detention? I'm going to call out one scene in particular. This movie, I think, it kind of walks this fine, fun line of kind of hitting the pleasure points and hitting the story beats. And I might call it the microfiche, you know, motif, because there's something to be said of like, we've seen these scenes a million times before. Um, But if you do them right, Mm -hmm. they're a lot of fun. And, you know, to bring up the ring again, like, you know, Naomi Watts, she hops into the local kind of you know, hospital, asylum, institution, and, uh, you know, does a little digging and finds some, you know, she does her research. And in this movie, like many other movies, there is the, uh, there's the scene where the gang or the survivors up to this point go to a elderly woman's home. And her name is Lulu Baptiste. And Lulu... Uh, is it that Lulu was the daughter of like a, a, maid a servant? Or? Yeah. Okay. So Lulu was in essence the same age as Sarah, or they were close. They were like peers uh, in this house. Um, is that correct? Ish. Ish. I mean, like it's kind of alluded to in a flashback, or like in the in the flashback, I kind of feel like we're meant to be experiencing Sarah Bellows at the same age that that Stella is at. Mm -hmm. And then Lulu is sort of, I don't know, six years or seven years younger than she. Okay. Lulu Baptiste, I I, I find it to be kind of a problematic scene for a few reasons. And, you know, I, I know a lot of it is kind of, thinking specifically of kind of where the country was at in the sixties. And Mm -hmm. I, I, but like something about the, I I think you can kind of look at it and scrutinize it under a few different lenses, whether that's cultural, whether it's political, but like, you know, having, having the kind of like the old slightly diminished black woman kind of sitting on the porch to me, it just, it, it kind of took me so far out of the movie I really wanted to call foul on it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if it was the casting. I don't know if it was, it had something specifically to do with the race or just the kind of sheer familiarity of the scene that like you could quite literally mad lib that entire scene, you know, 
take out Cerebellos and put in Samara or put in <laughs> like any uh, like Freddy Krueger for for the love of God. Like, you know, like it, we've seen that scene so many times and it doesn't offer anything new. I, I, I wanted I like got so gripey with it. I was like, this has to be a reshoot. Like they had to like add the scene in later mm-hmm. because, you know, maybe there wasn't like enough story, like enough kind of connective tissue and they needed to get somehow from A to B. So let's let's add this scene in and insert it here. And and to add insult to injury that the fact that this is the the scene that pays lip service to the her song, like, <laughs> like that, like really that I, I got so irked by that. So I'm going to shut up now because I've said my piece and yeah, that's my, that's my detention. Um, all right, Eric, you got a detention slip. Yeah. So for my first detention slip, um, I, I have to say, I think the, the creatures, as I pointed out, are all very impressive looking, but I think they all act in kind of the same way. Um, there's not a lot of differentiation uh, going on between the sort of Baymax like pale lady in the hospital, the toe challenged corpse that comes after Augie, Harold the scarecrow, the jangly man. Um, they're all pretty scary to look at, but to me, they didn't feel tailored enough or suited to each kid's own fears, which highlights to me a larger problem with this film, which is that the book and Sarah aren't really things to be feared. They're just sort of spectral presences that have no real menace, unlike, say, a Pennywise or, in the case of Stranger Things, um, a a Mind Flayer or a Vecna. Um, So that was that's my first attention slip. Um, Do you feel like the uh, the punishments are not uh, are not related enough to the characters? I. I, I I don't think they're uh, suited well enough to each kid's own fears. I think that the the monsters, as it were, all sort of behave in a certain similar fashion. They all kind of show up and lumber around. Um, but with the exception, of course, of, of perhaps of the jangly man, I, I just feel like they're all just sort of, they're, they're more representations of, Gamel's illustrations than uh, sort of neatly differentiated. Uh-huh. Yeah, I just there's there's a similarity to all of them. Um, again, this is nothing to do with how cool they look. It's just the way they act doesn't feel different enough to me. I, I feel like there's more relationship. I'm not sure that it's successful, but I think it's it's there. They're trying to do it. Okay, so why don't you tell us your first detention slip, sir? Um, well, I mean, I, this is sort of what I was hinting at before, but it's for me the narrative structure and the detail are so so complex, you know, especially given that the source material is a series of page long stories that it, it's almost too much for a, a single film. You know, it's a ghost story, it's a supernatural revenge story, it's a buddy movie, it's a love story, it's examining the ideas of you know truth and lies and trauma and expurgation and and i think the first time you see it the first time you watch the movie there's so much coming at you that you just kind of go along for the ride but when you 
come back when you rewatch it, if you're paying attention to it and you're not just letting it wash over you, you can see that the seams are, are straining a little bit. They're, they're not bulging like the, the cheese woman's gown, but they're certainly straining the seams. And I just feel like it's, you know, I feel like this is half on a roll and half detention because I love the depth of the dramaturgy. I love a carefully constructed narrative structure, but I'm not sure that even if all of that detail enhanced the the work of the filmmakers and the actors, you know, if, if knowing those things added something to the work that they were doing, I'm not sure that we as an audience need to know everything we eventually take away from it. Clay, do you have a, a second detention slip? I don't. I think I'm going to stick to the one purely because I, I don't want to speak ill of the dead. But I do think that, you know, we've, we've, there's a lot to kind of scrutinize. And I, and I do think that you're correct that, like, the first time you watch it, the movie just kind of, kind of wash over you in this way where you're just like, oh my gosh. Um, and I think if you go for the ride, it's a fun ride. But it's it's when you start to kind of look at it with an analytical eye that it's just kind of like, okay, what's going on? Where are we yeah. going with this? Yeah. Eric, do you have a, another detention slip? I do. Um, it's unfortunate in terms of the timing of this film, but you know, coming three years after the beginning of Stranger Things and two years after The Losers Club, um, in it chapter one, I, I, this does kind of feel like a pale imitation, uh, of those kind of kids relationships. Um, and I know that you disagree with me on this, but I actually feel like we don't get a chance. We don't get a chance to know the main players all that well, or each is mainly defined by a single characteristic that makes them all a bit too one-dimensional. I mean, we get a tidbit about what each of them is afraid of, but not enough. Does that bring us back to you, sir? Okay. It, it does, as Clay is, is um, not speaking ill of the dead. <laughs> uh, Clay, I, I, well, actually, Clay and Eric, I think I'm about to say something that kind of disagrees with some of the stuff you were talking about earlier. I know you both really love the Red Room sequence, but I, I have some issues with how it's cut together. I, I feel like there only ever wants to feel like there is one pale woman who's coming from everywhere. But it always just feels kind of like there are multiple versions of the pale woman. Because... As it's cutting, we're sort of always looking at Chuck from her perspective when we're seeing him. But behind him, we'll see another version of the pale woman. And it just, it feels to me a little bit like, Clay, I think you described it as as being labyrinthine or feeling like a, a maze or something when he's going through those hallways. And to me, when you've got four or five pale women coming from different directions. It feels a little bit like we're playing like Pac-Man with Chuck, you know? <laughs> and I, I just sort of wish it were slightly cleaner so it only ever felt like we had one unstoppable pale woman who was just wherever he wanted to be. Oh, it's interesting because I actually thought they were all manifestations of the same vision. Well, they are, or they're meant to be. Yeah, I didn't think there were multiples of them. I I felt like he was turning down the hallway and it, 
be one and then he turned back and be another. But I, I did feel like they were all a single creature. Well, yeah, no, I mean, to be fair, you know, I mean, he he gets to a point where he's kind of just sort of turning in one direction and then the other and then the other, you know, mm-hmm. as it's closing in. And every time we, we cut to a different angle, we as an audience are seeing her behind him. Uh, Eric, do you have a third detention slip? It's about the social relevance of this film. Um, I I think that the attempts to sort of shoehorn in the social relevance by showing constant references to the Nixon election and Vietnam feel pretty unearned to me. And it's mainly because there's really nothing political about this story, save for the persecution of, of Ramon, which feels very true um and and believable um really this film could take place in any era um given it revolves around a a book in storytelling the choice of the 1968 feels a little bit too arbitrary to me um i believe that del toro would take umbrage with that i'm sure he would because uh he said 1968 was the last year of American innocence. Mm -hmm. And so beyond that, it would sort of be a a different thing, I suppose. But also, you know, Clay, I don't know how you feel about this, but I am a huge fan of of, um, locating a story in a time when uh, certain technological intercessors would not be available you know the the kids don't have cell phones they don't have computers they have to um interact with each other they can't necessarily broadcast their trouble um they can't easily access information that will help them to solve their problem any chance to take away a cell phone i'll happily take it Hallelujah, holy shit, yeah. There you go. Uh, Bradford Lork, so do you want to take us home with your third and final detention slip? You bet I do. I have some real problems with that acrylic chevron afghan in Stella's house. That I knew you were going to say that. I, I knew there was going to be a, a fashion or style reference made at some point this evening. I, I find this film to be quite a stylish film, but it I is. think that acrylic chevron blanket is disgusting it makes my skin crawl to look at it <laughs> enfin that is the end of my detention all right before we bring it on home with our superlatives let's take a quick break for recess we'll get some air into our lungs run around a little bit deface some campaign posters maybe have a <laughs> snack or two clay when you were growing up did you have a favorite sort of lunchtime recess snack saltines and peanut butter I was a big, uh, I'm still a big peanut butter fella. So <laughs> now let's go take a break. I'm going to go get some peanut butter, actually. And and then we will come back for the superlatives. As far as everyone's concerned, you're the most popular girl in your school. And the fact that you hang with Dee and I, well, that speaks very highly of you. He's very popular, and Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. So, is this your first time out here? Yeah. I don't think I'm very popular out here either. Hey, I met you. 
you are not cool. There are people I work with, and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. Okay, welcome back. It's time to hand out our superlatives, those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dressed, and most likely to succeed. Only with us, it's things like character that most deserve to die. So to start us off, let's do our first award, the Gaspar Noe Award for Most Disturbing Scene. Named for uh, Gaspar Noe, of course, uh, director of such films as Irreversible, Love 3D, Enter the Void, Climax, and Bradford's new favorite film, Lux Eterna. Um, you know, Bradford, what, what, would you do us the, the honor of, of naming your Gaspar Noe Award, starting us off? I sure will. Thank you for asking. My pleasure. I'm going to give mine to uh, Augie's Dinner for One or of one oh. uh, because unintentional cannibalism can't be overvalued. Yeah, it is unintentional, isn't it? Um, that's true. That's true. Um, Clay, most disturbing scene. What do you got? I'm going to go back to our Gouda girl um, in the red room. Hmm. I, I feel like just the kind of like the pleasure she der- derives from hugging Chuck like I just felt the squish and the absorption and, you know, I think she even makes it kind of like a <laughs> sound. Like she's like, oh, God. Like, it's like that uh, old squelchy Chuck hugger. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I got to go with spiders it, uh, though it's not nearly as gross as it could be, given this is a PG-13 film. And it certainly doesn't hold a candle to another film we discussed earlier this season, which spiders burst forth from the body of a human being. Um, It still is uh, quite a disturbing moment. And Clay, Eric is, of course, talking about the mist. I was wondering. I I was like, how many other spider bursting out of human scenes are there? God. That film, yeah. Well, there, there, there's the one in there's the the really big one in Love Actually. <laughs> uh, <and laughs> That's a great one. That was That's my a great first, one. Yeah. Um, okay. Yes. Uh, that brings us to our second award, which is the Ellen Ripley Award for character that most deserved to live. Um, and this is, of course, named for Ellen Ripley. The um, the crew member of the doomed Nostromo uh, in Ridley Scott's Alien, played by uh, the wonderful Mrs. Sigourney Weaver. Um, You know, I'm going to let Clay start us off with this one. Clay, what do you got for the Ellen Ripley Award for character that most deserved to live? I know I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but I'm going to go Chuck. Chuck is... He was funny. Uh, I think... um, the actor, you know, there's no way. I, I'm going to, Austin Zajur, Zajur um, mm. I thought he did an amazing job. It was one of the more dynamic performances in the the, the film. Um, he should have lived, damn it. He should have crawled out of, <laughs> the, uh, out of the cheese. Yeah. Crawled straight through, gone out the other mm. side. 
Well, if it was Swiss cheese, he might have. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Bradford, Um, what do you got for Ellen Ripley? Chuck Steinberg, hands down. Wow. The, the kid didn't want anything to do with any of this. He didn't invite the events that transpire. He believed what was going on. He actively sought to escape whatever fate uh, was in store for him. Chuck should have lived. Interesting. You know, uh, gents, I, I hate to be the skunk at the garden party, but... Um, I'm going to go with Augie on this one, um, mainly because I I actually did do some Commedia dell'arte in college, and uh, Augie did know the difference between a clown and Pierrot. So um, I, I appreciated that. Um, and I think you did too, guys. I think you did too. Um, nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, we are going to move on to the Michael Myers Award for character that most deserved to die. And as we have started doing uh, on the show, uh, we have turned to our guest to tell us who is Michael Myers. Clay, would you like to enlighten our listeners? For 16 years, I watched him stare at a wall. (laughs) Staring through the wall. Looking past the wall. That's that's as much as I could. I don't know if I know it's the good. rest of it. I'm paraphrasing. That's but, good. Uh, but what do you do? Tell us. Tell for those who don't know, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm, doing some... a, I'm doing a piss poor Loomis. Is what I'm doing. I go. thought um, Donald Pleasance was sitting on my shoulder. God damn. <laughs> um, yes, Michael Myers. Michael Myers is the evil in all of us. He's he's the blank. He's the the darkness that we all feel within our hearts and fear um and that we bring out every every hallows eve um that that is true michael's the man and appropriately so perhaps for this film taking place um initially on halloween eve um i'm gonna start us off here guys this is the character that most deserved to die and uh for me there is there it's got to be chief turner (laughs) <laughs> that mean cop who's a complete dick to Ramon. Bradford? Uh, there's one obvious answer in this entire film, and that would be Richard Milhouse Nixon. Oh, <laughs> interesting. And, and also Tommy Wilner. Both of them I'm, do I'm die. I'm obviously kidding about Nixon. He doesn't die in the film. Yeah, exactly. Well, he dies. Exactly. He Nixon does just, die. We don't see it happen in the film. Um, Clay, what do you have for Dean Michael Norris Myers? Norris should die. I, I, Roy, Roy Nichols, dad, um, oh, Stella's father. No, I, I, f- I found him. You, you know, it's a, it's a thankless role. Nobody, you know, if you're the kind of the most recognizable actor within the film, and you are, you're kind of playing the thankless role of the the, the parent who has to mourn or kind of do the, the do the somber. Um, and Dean does a decent somber. There's just I, I, I feel like the role is undercooked. Um, and therefore and, he should die. You know <laughs> I think I think the role should have been cut. I think Stella should have just been a way a like a street urchin. I like, see. Yeah. So it's sort of death by screenwriter, as it were. Yeah. Got it. Uh, wow. Lulu Lulu kind of falls into the same category, I think, to some extent. Um, exactly. Yeah. 
All right. So uh, moving right along, uh, we're at the Ken Russell Award for Most uh, Baroque Screen Moment. Uh, Bradford, who, who was Ken Russell? Well, Ken Russell was a sort of visionary filmmaker. He made you might films say. like The Lair of the White Worm, uh, Salome's Last Dance. He made a little film called Whore. Whore. Uh, you know, he, he was a... He, he was um, the first person kicked out of the Celebrity Big Brother house. In, yes, uh, the, yes. The UK production of that uh, for being a notorious racist. Um, yeah, Ken Russell. He made a lot of very big Baroque. Uh, he, he directed The Devils, which is among the most Baroque films probably ever made. So that being said, who do you have or what do you have for the most Baroque screen moment? Who me? Yes, you. Uh, I think it has to go to the entire. I think it has to go to the entire first battle sequence between Stella, Chuck, and Augie and Tommy Wilner. It's got car crashes. It's got laps full of burning shit. It's got a bag of stolen, dirty old man underwear. As far as things go in this film, that feels fairly baroque. Interesting. Interesting. I am. Not going to agree with you there, but uh, I, I'd like to hear what Clay has to say first. I It's a little tepid, my response, but I feel like the flashback, the Cerebellos flashback, where we kind of get, we see through her eyes and, you know, we find the fam is, has been pretty, uh, pretty rude to young Sam. <laughs> um, I felt like that that's where the movie, you know, kind of shifts into that. I don't know if it's Baroque, but it's definitely maudlin and very, you know, it, the, I, I almost want to say it kind of air, it like tips into camp, but, um, by being yeah. so overwrought. Well, right. um, yeah, I, I, well, you know, I'm going to go with the initial appearance of the jangly man following the, um, hmm. Uh, the Play-Doh Walker, whatever the hell his name is. Um, just th- that whole sequence with the head plopping down first and then the rest of the body parts assembling themselves. And I'm sorry, did you the... say Play-Doh Walker? That's what I, yeah. Or is it Tie-Dye Walker? Play-Doh Tie-Dye Walker? Play-Doh Tie-Dye Walker, Texas Ranger. That's what I thought. Me thank you. Me Walker. Ah, thank you. Thank you. I, I do you know, something always, along those lines. It always bugged me when this whole thing is like, when, when the entire collection of short stories is basically uh, American regional um, oral tradition or, uh, you know, Native American stuff like the yep. Wendigo. Yes. And we've got this so obviously Irish story. Mm. Is it? You know, well, yeah, I mean, it, you hear the accent that it's delivered in. I always remember reading it as a kid and reading it in dialect in my head, you know, um, it just always felt so strange. Uh, which takes us to our final award of the evening, the Brad Dourif Award for a character that could have been played by Brad Dourif. God, what a fun award to give out this is because... Uh, we love Brad Dorf on the show. He's our patron saint. Uh, he played um, James Veneman. James Veneman, the the Gemini, the Gemini killer. killer. Yep, the, he's the voice of Chucky in the Child's Play films. Um, he's worked with such directors as John Huston and David Lynch and David Lynch. Um, <laughs> who could he have been 
in this film, Mr. Lorick? I think I'm just going to keep it really simple and suggest that he he would have played Stella's father really strangely and beautifully. <laughs> so if he's still in the film and, and Clay hasn't killed him off. If he's still in the film, make him Brad Dourif. Clay, uh, who would you have Brad Dourif play in this film? Uh, I would say Chief Turner, Sheriff Turner. Interesting. Um, I mean, as it's written, as it's performed now, currently, you you get the 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 racism, you get the kind of the the xenophobia. Um, but I think that if if Dourif took it, you could see a a little bit more conflictedness. Like I, I think that any any kind of racial profiling would be done with kind of a a, a sense of either tragedy or pathos that would <laughs> make Lord. it just a little bit more interesting and just giving it that that twang that Duroff gives yeah mm-hmm. yeah that, you yeah know. well you know as fun as it is to sometimes all hit the same uh scene moment or character uh i've got to go back to the jangly man here because he just seems to have an interior life that's just not great and he just seems so full of rage throughout his lifespan i think a twisted contorted brad dorf would have absolutely killed in that role so to speak so to speak all right and with that ladies and gentlemen we have arrived at our final segment of the night the final exam. And this is the part where we give our final letter grade for the semester based on everything we've heard and seen about this film. Clay, would you like to go first and give us a final letter grade for scary stories to tell in the dark? I'm going to say a B. Not bad. It, not not bad. Not bad. And, and it would have been a B minus had... Uh, had they not shown up on time and had all their turned their homework in. Um, but I, I do feel like clearly they, the people behind the film are very familiar with the material. And I think probably most of them love the material as much as, as we do, or I do. Um, so I, I think that the film is kind of made with care and an eye towards the source material. All right, Mr. Winnick. Final letter grade? I'm giving it a C plus. Oh, you're insane. I knew you'd say that. Over to you, Mr. Lorick. I'm coming in right next to my buddy Clay Chapman with a solid B. Hmm. I think it's a totally delightful popcorn movie. I think I had a great time seeing it. I think that it was, at the end of the day, a little overfilled and... Ultimately, not as satisfying, perhaps, as it could have been. But I do think it's a, a, a fun watch. Um, and, and I think it's a great uh, gateway drug for, for young'uns who might want to dip their toes into the genre but haven't done so previously. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Listen, folks, uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you do, tell your friends, share our episodes on that series of pneumatic tubes known as the Internet. Have a listening party. Bring some 
saltines and peanut butter and hey maybe even subscribe or better yet give us a five-star rating on apple podcasts so it'll be easier for others to track down Mm, and and listen listen be sure to check out additional information on our instagram account in our facebook group or on our website scare you Doty Tie <laughs> Perfect. Um, thank you again to our very special guest, Mr. Clay McLeod Chapman. Clay, if people want to find you online, where can they do so? I'm on the Twitters and the Instagrams and even the Facebooks. Uh, it's usually Clay McLeod um, or Clay McLeod Chapman. Um, pretty Googleable out there in the this this world that we call the matrix <laughs> very good <laughs> meanwhile you can find me at bradfordlorick.com and you can find me on letterboxd and instagram under the moniker ea winnick our announcements have been by Kay kaiser sir anthony hopkins wyatt olaf and sophia lillis our theme music is by edward elger and sir cubworth Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you soon in the big creepy mansion we like to call Scare You. <laughs> <laughs>